I'm Bert Broadhead, and welcome to Building Our Future. Today, we're following up on the trend of co-living and exploring the idea of intergenerational living. We'll be looking into the rationale for older generations living in separate enclaves apart from the rest of society, and whether there is a solution that provides a better result for all involved by helping to tackle a growing cross-generational problem, that of loneliness. For answers, I've tracked down the owner of a new business concept focused on intergenerational living. If you enjoyed today's episode, do send me some Twitter love at the unpronounceable handle at building underscore R-O-U-R. Otherwise, you can find me on LinkedIn. My guest today is Justin Shi, CEO and founder of The Cohab, a new intergenerational retirement living company, bringing old and young adults together under one roof to live in mutual support. The Cohab is both an answer to the age ghettos created by retirement living and a solution to the loneliness epidemic faced by both young and old adults in the UK. Justin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, Pleasure to be here. Perhaps you can, we can start by you just explaining what it is that the Cohab is. Yeah, the Cohab is a new intergenerational retirement living company. The way that our model works is by keeping a small number of units available for younger people to live in at a discounted rent. And in return for that discounted rent, they're expected to spend a certain amount of time helping out with the management team, running events, hanging out with our elderly neighbours, just making retirement living fun, right? Because the big problem is that older people don't just want to live with other older people. It's what they consistently say. And there are also a lot of younger people who really crave that kind of like family style of living and want to be around older people. There's management and there's volunteers effectively creating this. Yes, so you know, we have a professional management team as well, which takes care of the kind of harder stuff and the, the, you know, the real day-to-day management. Uh, and then, yeah, it's incentivized community volunteers who live there at this kind of rent, also who spend time making sure it's a great place to live. This is a recent idea, recently set up. Where, where are you in terms of business execution? We are in negotiations on a number of sites. Uh, we want to secure our first site by the end of this year. And then we are looking to grow quickly. Uh, we're looking to scale as quickly as possible. I mean, it's a huge, huge market and massive, massive untapped potential. Yeah, we're looking to capitalize on being the first movers in this space and make it a really successful business. Cool. We'll come on to, uh, at the end, what kind of sites you're looking for if, if people want to get in touch. But perhaps you can just explain what, what you were doing prior to this and how it was you came to, to make the jump to starting out your own business. Prior to this, I was working at JLL, where I specialised in alternative investments. So that is student accommodation, build to rent, retirement living, everything that this incorporates essentially just as one. So clearly with, with an investment background, I suppose. Yeah, it's an investment development background, yeah. What was it that attracted you to elderly? elderly? Yeah, sure. Uh, so it was a number of things, really. I think wh- one of the big factors has been the fact that I grew up living with my grandfather. So I grew up in the same household as him, with my parents as well. But um, I've al- always been uh, very aware of how advantageous multi-generational living is. Uh, both to me and to him Um, and you know I've always been very interested in how older and younger people interact in society Uh, and then doing more focused work in the actual retirement living sector I saw 
you know, the big issue being that older people don't just want to live with other older people. And, you know, I'd seen some emerging intergenerational models around Europe and seen how it's kind of accidentally happening in some of the build-to-rent space and some of the co-living space. Before we uh, dive into the, the background to what it, what it means, is generational definitions get thrown around quite a lot, yeah. young, old. What, what are we talking about when we say the elderly? Is it, is it synonymous with retirees? The term elderly is actually not very politically correct now. Mm. Um, so <laughs> the, el- the elder generation, the, el- really? <laughs> the elders. There's no difference between them. <laughs> no, it's, um, just, um, it's something I got called up on a lot when I was kind of first studying yeah, with all this. But oh, you have to but there you carefully go. nowadays. Everyone knows now. Um, so yeah, look. Ultimately, being old, I really do believe it is a mindset. Yeah. Like you know, I know people in their seventies who who exercise every day. They're a lot fitter than I am who, uh, you know, my grandpa's 91. He has a much more active social life than I do. It's, uh, you know, being old is very much a mindset. That said, for our products, you know, we're targeting really people from their 70s decade onwards. You're always going to get a few younger people in, but the retirement market generally is from your 70s. So our, our, our meeting came about following my conversation on uh, my last episode with Gemma John where we were talking about um, intergenerational living. And it led me to doing some some further research. And I think there are probably two misconceptions that exist amongst uh, amongst our, our perceptions of, of the aging population at the moment. The first uh, is, I think there's a common held belief that it is baby boomers sitting tight in their own, own occupied homes, whilst there are increasing numbers of the younger generation having to rent for longer. Do you think this is actually the case? Or is it a bit more nuanced? Uh, yeah, it's de- it, it's both. It, it, it is the case generally, but it is also much more nuanced. So it is certainly true that younger people are renting for longer. And it is certainly true that most older people are still living in their family homes and they probably will do for the rest of their lives. But what we're also seeing is an increasing trend for people to want to rent in retirement uh, so the number of people renting in retirement has actually gone up by 61% in the last decade. The bit that really interests me is there's a, a, a clamour. It's like, why won't these people downsize? And then you think, okay, well, what are options? You can downsize into a, a smaller owner-occupied property, but there is this growing trend to actually downsize or move into, into rented accommodation. And I suppose there are various drivers behind this. And, and what, do you think they, what do you think they are? There are three really key drivers that people always report. Uh, The first is having no hassle. So not having the hassle of ownership and not having the hassle of maintenance is really, really key for people, especially as they get older and their needs change. Like It can become so overwhelming having this house you've got to maintain, although you you may find it harder to get around the house. Uh, The the second thing is financially. Uh, You know, a number of people are attracted to the idea of moving somewhere where you don't have to pay stamp duty, where you can get your estate in order and after seven years pay no inheritance tax on it, um, of releasing some equity that you can spend on your lifestyle or pass on to your kids, say. Uh, and then the third is about flexibility. You know, people, especially in later life, uh, if they're at a transition stage, really, really value that flexibility. Say if they've just been through a bereavement or they just had a fall and they don't, you know, they're not actually really sure what the next... 10, 15 years of their life is going to look like. Living in a rental property, as long as you've got security of tenure, allows you to be able to be secure in in forecasting that. Okay, well, the security of tenure point is is interesting. So just to put these numbers in context, 2007, we had 254,000 
over 60s, moving into rented accommodation, that's now at 414. So it, it is a significant increase. But what, what's holding it back even further? Why, why isn't it greater? Yeah, it really is that security of tenure piece. So there's a recent uh, study by a group called Boomer and Beyond, um, which showed that 46% of people would prefer to rent than own in, when they're downsizing in retirement. Yet you know, 99% of all the retirement product is for sale at the moment. And you know, the big key factor is the security of tenure. And by that, we mean it's UK lease law. Um, people take, you have a three-year lease, and then theoretically, you could be thrown out at the end. Yeah, exactly. I mean, for most people, they think renting, they think, okay, it's just some muggy landlord of Zoopla or Rightmove who was, is going to chuck me out after six months and, or try and double my rent. Okay, so do you think there's a, well, maybe that's putting words in your mouth, but there seems to, there seems to <laughs> a be... A market? <laughs> there, there seems to be, yeah, there seems to be a market. So there is, yeah. Of, <laughs> we got there. <laughs> so my other identified misconception, which, again, I'm hoping you're going to agree with me, otherwise your business is rubbish, um, is, um, yeah, there's a growing concern, I think, amongst, or a growing acknowledgement amount amongst most of us that we have this epidemic of loneliness mm. amongst the elderly now i know you've recently taken part in a panel exercise with the all-party parliamentary group on social integration do you think this loneliness problem is purely restricted to, to the older generations or, or is, is this something more widespread it's a really really widespread issue and i think as a country we're, we're just about beginning to waken up to the fact that it really is a public health issue the BBC did a study that came out a couple of weeks ago that showed that the most lonely group of people now are those between the ages of 16 and 24, and a whole 40% of them said they feel lonely often or very often. I mean, that's a huge proportion of younger people. And it actually kind of... that The number of people saying they were lonely often or very often actually declines later on into life. But then it's also important not to assume that loneliness and isolation are the same thing because while younger people report higher instances of loneliness they don't report higher instances of isolation so it's really it's that older generation that older people that um, are much more prone to becoming isolated and that's where you know the retirement living market and the housing market generally can play a really key part in helping alleviate that is isolation physical or social you can be in a well-located physical place and still be isolated. So there's a really great a term that psychologists use called about a cerebral network. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you, and that's your inner circle of the people that you are closest to. And when you're young, you know, you're born, you have loads of people, you've got brothers, sisters, parents, all these things. But then as you get older, people start dying off or, you know, people start moving away and it's harder to keep in touch with them. So as you're, if people disappear from your cerebral network and they're not replaced, then you become much more isolated and those people that you're depending on start dropping off. And that's when it becomes, that's when it's a real challenge. And it clearly appears to be a, a bit of a problem with the fact that digital connectivity is, is apparently not leading to the richness of social interaction that, that young people may have assumed it, it once would. Do, mm. do you think, with relation to what you've just, you've just said, you, you have that paradox where people, whatever, look at their social media and, and feel like they, they may have... There's just a disconnect between the friends they may feel that they've got and what they actually have. Yeah, hugely. I mean, yeah, that's got to be one of the big correlations. Um, and it's also increasingly hard for younger and older people to 
naturally engage in society. You know, perhaps that is because I'm not an expert on social media, but perhaps it's because younger people engage more through social media and older people don't so much. So it's harder mm. for those generations to come together. All right. So those are, those are my kind of conclusions on the, the misconceptions. So what, what does exist if you are looking to downsize in elderly life at the moment? What are your options? First thing is you can stay in your home. So most people are in a family-sized home, say, um, and say your kids have left, and it might be it might it might be becoming hard for you to maintain as your needs change. It might be very expensive to maintain. You might be isolated and lonely in there. So that it might not be the best option. Your second choice is you could do a traditional downsize, whatever that might be. So you know that you might buy a more suitable flat, say, or a bungalow, and that can be great because it can allow it'd be much more easier to maintain. But you may you've still got some maintenance. And you've still got to buy and you've still got to commit to something and you might still be lonely and you might still be isolated. You could do that or, you know, if you have kids and you're, you've got kids like you and you like your kids, you could move in with them. But, you know, that's a recipe for disaster for a lot of people. Um, or you can buy in a retirement community, which is, again, like a really great option for a lot of people. And it can do really good stuff to alleviate loneliness and isolation. But you've still got to... You've still got to buy something. You've still got to commit your capital. You've still got to pay stamp duty. You've still got exit fees. Like it's not necessarily uh, the best financial decision. For you. And presumably quite a high service charge to cover the cost of services. Exactly. Yeah. Those are your options. If you don't like that, then well, you've just got to stay in your home, which is what the majority of people do. Albeit there are some there are some really good niche offerings which are starting to emerge. Yes. Uh, offering a wealth of facilities from restaurants, gyms, spas, cafes, libraries, the works. And if I name a few brands, we've got um, Elysium, Birchgrove. These do seem to, however, be at the the luxury level. Do you you think there's a way that could be expanded to a a more mass market? Uh, Yes, it could be. But you you need really real scale to make it work. I mean, to have all these, to have on-site care, to have, you know, on-site restaurants, leisure facilities all these bells and whistles, it, it is really, really expensive. So to make it a mid-market product, you need really, really big scale. Audley have recently launched their mid-market product called Mayfield, and they've acquired their first site. And I mean, no doubt it's going to be really successful, but they, you know, they have got big scale now, um, and you really need that to make it work. It, is your intention to provide uh, amenity? Yes, some amenity, communal spaces, but not all of those kind of like um yeah not all those on-site restaurants so you know our our model is basically to target great urban locations where you've got all those things on your doorstep and really our target market is for those people who are driven by being really independent and they're really attracted to the idea of going to the theater twice a week and they want to be in the city center so we don't have to provide those things and from the perspective of the security of tenure, which you touched about, how do you, how do you propose solving that issue? Well, we're seeing this now. Well, what we're seeing now with the built-to-rent space is the professionalization of rental, where people can take much longer leases. Uh, so, you know, that's what we're going to offer. We're going to offer people to leases as long as they like with uh, tenant-only break clauses. It's really about empowering the tenant, which is what we don't have at the moment in the rental market. Uh, I think that makes sense. And, and and obviously these high-end offerings, whilst very interesting, they, they don't necessarily solve the problem of segregation, which we've which we've talked about. So at the moment, you still have it, but most of the elderly communities are, are exactly that. They're, they're segregated elderly communities with very little um, uh, intergenerational connectivity. Yeah. Which is massively off-putting for a lot of people. 
there was a study recently done by a sale architect that showed that 87% of people would prefer to live in a mixed age community. Um, and well, the study of all people. No, 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 of, of, of retirees, right, of retirees, older people. Yeah. And then, you know, by the time you got to, if you isolate that, and it was the people who are above the age of 75, 100% of them said they'd prefer to live in mixed-age communities. So if, if you are creating a age-exclusive product, you, you know, you're limiting your market. You know, the fewer people will want to move in. So I've got something you're, you're going to like in that case. So <laughs> that, that's the evidence that the elderly would like to live in. Um, I'm not allowed to say the elderly, am I? Older people. Older people <laughs> allowed to, would like to live in intergenerational communities. But um, survey of 2,000 adults in the US undertaken by Generations United and the Eisner Foundation found that 94% of people agree with the concept that older people have skills and talents that can help address children's needs. And that 89% believe that children can help these adults' needs. Uh, more than four in five Americans would prefer sending a senior loved one to a care setting with intergenerational interaction, and seventy-four percent felt that age separation was harmful. So there's clearly there's clearly um, a mutual desire for this for this intergenerational living. It's not it's not just um, driven by those in their in their later years. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. What age groups are you looking to put together in your intergenerational form? You know, as we discussed at the beginning, so the core target market of older people is most likely to be people you know, from their 70s decade. Yep. Um, and then for the younger people, we're looking at people mostly in their 20s mm-hmm. um, who have got lifestyles that facilitate communal living, people who are really craving that kind of family living environment. Postgraduate students works really well for this. They're in a stage of their life where they're looking to learn, they're looking to engage, they've got flexible time commitments. Diaries, yeah. Diaries, uh, yeah. And, and clearly <laughs> goes hand in hand with the, the, the loneliness issue we, we talked about earlier in the BBC survey of, of young people being... Yeah, there. absolutely. If you can bring them together, it's, you know, it's completely mutually beneficial. So this, this is, uh, doesn't necessarily relate to you 100%, but I thought it was interesting uh, reading that over in the US, they've got... Um, uh, a couple of programs, one being in Oklahoma at Jenks West Elementary School, uh, where they've been running a skilled nursing home with the idea of um, the elderly generation teaching the younger. Um, so they've got some pretty hor- horrible terminology here, but grandpas and grandmas mix with littles uh, hmm. via programs called uh, Book Buddies. But it's been running since 1998. It's clearly been successful, and other people are now trying to copy it. Do you think intergenerational can extend to even younger generations? Oh, hugely, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, that's. I think that that's where we're seeing the most traction at the moment in the UK. That's, in many respects, the easiest way to kind of bring people together. So you might have seen um, Channel 4's recent documentary on where four-year-olds go into care homes, and that's absolutely caught the nation's imagination. You know, people are just like, this is such a obvious solution to things Um, and there's a big drive now to uh, bring to to have mixed sites Um, down in Clapham they've got uh, a nursery which actually opened in a care home so the nursery is it's it's official site is in the care home which is fantastic Um, and you know it's working really really well and they've got some great community engagement uh, initiatives going on now not only helps those two generations but presumably the one in the middle as well the parents yeah absolutely and, uh, uh, you know what's really interesting is they found that they do um when they do their weekend sessions the people that get the most out of it often are the parents who actually come uh, and just get a couple of hours hanging out with 
other other parents, other older people. It's just a it's just a great community environment for everyone to come and take a part in. And they've got people travel from all around London just to come and take part in this on a Saturday. Well, it seems kind of so obvious in in retrospect, but I suppose most of these things do. And and the yeah. real the real skill is in the delivery. So you, you're also riding a, a real zeitgeist at the moment of, of what seems to be a, a boost for, for co-housing, co-living, call it what we will. So architectural firm Studio Weave and, and Reba have just produced a report called Living Closer, The Many Faces of Co-Housing. And they're arguing that when applied correctly, the approach can boost well-being, combat loneliness and realise more sensitive and nuanced options for an increasingly elderly society. Really, we are just at the tip of the iceberg. I mean, what co-living, co-housing, all of it's doing is replicating community where it's been lost in people's lives. You know, we are, as animals, we're communal beings. We grew up in tribes. Um, you know, people would have, it, right until the 70s, really, people grew up in this country knowing everyone uh, who lived on their street or everyone who lived in their village. And now that's not happening. We, we worship the nuclear family and we've kind of retreated into the nuclear family. And it's a lot harder for people to access communal living and communities naturally. So that's why we're seeing such a rise in co-housing developments and co-living schemes. Yeah, it's, a, it's just a natural modern solution to the problem. And, and it takes me back to um, my interview with Ed Thomas over at the, the Collective and the emphasis on trying to curate this community without forcing it on people and letting it happen mm. organically but putting the tools in place to enable them i suppose avoiding the the slightly patronizing element that elder people may feel that the younger people are being financially incentivized to spend time with them i mean do you have a, a way of thinking about that and communicating that yeah absolutely so you know, it's really really important not to be prescriptive not to tell people to do certain activities and not to have forced engagement. You see all the successful intergenerational models around Europe that work in similar ways to what we're doing, they're all run in a bottom-up approach. So they have the facilities that allow interaction and encourage interaction, but they never tell people what to do. Instead, they provide support to help people interact and help events be run, but... Um, never do they say, you know, you must run a bingo night on Thursday night because that might not be what people want. Yeah. Um, you know, you've got to allow the community to run organically and naturally. And by having younger people there who are really engaged and they are, you know, volunteers who buy into this lifestyle, who are taking a lead in this, it's a way of taking that away from a professional management team who are doing it because it's their job and they're paid. So, you know, it really, it's a way of, um, although, you know, it can sound like it might be an, inorganic unnatural way of living it's actually a really natural way of incentivizing people to of incentivizing the community to run organically do you think about how technology can help in in terms of this this integration a lot of it will actually come from the younger people helping older people to use technology i mean that's what you see in these intergenerational schemes is that one of the big areas where younger people can really add value to older people's lives is in helping them keep up with the pace of change with technology. Right. Um, that's that's a really key issue. And then from the kind of real estate perspective, I personally am very, very sceptical about the idea that uh, you have to have like a, a key technology layer to living. You, know, you see countless 
build to rent, co-living providers, whatever, spend, invest millions of pounds into technology, building an app. You talk about then then build building management service or, or yeah, a, or yeah, a do, client do, do, interface. Do, do, or, building, um, building a kind of client interface, so right, like yeah, an app, yeah. so that people can use it. Yes. Um, and, and actually, I mean, it never gets used. But people who've got WhatsApp, people who've got Facebook, like you know, these things happen naturally. You don't need to build your own technology infrastructure. So a couple of brands have really shot to prominence in recent times, the collective being one. They, they have almost become synonymous with the concept of, of co-living, which is great in some ways in terms of its really boosted profile. Uh, do you think that's a help or a hindrance in terms of what you're trying to achieve with a, a totally different type of co-housing? I, I think it's both. I mean, it's, it's really positive because it shows... Um, the demand for alternative types of living and it shows that they can be commercially successful products um, which is great I mean it is the, the worry is that it does the term co-living does become synonymous with small rooms as, you know, small units and generation rent I hate that term but that's the term that you know the journos use look there's, there's nothing wrong with those products though. I mean the, the, what we need in the market is just more options so there's clearly a demand for you know, smaller rooms which are based on affordability just as there's demand for and the space in the market for our product which is you know good size quality flats you know above yeah. space standards look it's it's exciting we're all kind of collaborating and we're all in touch with each other i think the more ideas like yours take off hopefully the more loose the definition of co-housing co-living becomes so that it's not just tied to you know you don't want it being like we work is co-working it's yeah it's it's an idea not a brand Okay, so I'm a, I'm a developer or a, or a property owner. Okay. Interested <laughs> in the space. What are you looking for? How do we, how do we work together? <laughs> we are looking for great sites in urban locations. Uh, so we're looking at high value areas uh, where you've got a number of older people who are looking to downsize. And we are looking to, for anything from about 40 units, that's our kind of minimum viable product, and yeah, and we were looking to partner with forward-thinking, innovative developers who want to get into the retirement living space. Have you worked out a, uh, a USP yet in terms of in terms of what can give you a, a cutting edge and viability on a site versus uh, a traditional resi developer? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So, I mean, we can compete in areas where traditional build-to-rent can't. So, we can make rental model work in higher-value locations um, by the nature of our customers actually being able to pay more um, and you know moving out of that uh, out of those family homes um, so that's one way you know we can increase yield that way we're also by nature of our customers being much older and making longer term decisions they're decreasing tenancy churn so you've got a much more viable long-term rental model than other um, operational models out there in the market at the moment uh, and how can people get in touch uh, best way is via email i'm justin at the cohab.com and that's cohab with a k yeah, I'll chuck it on the website. Um, <laughs> Thanks. It's, it's yeah, trend, trendy cohab. Yeah, trendy cohab. <laughs> um, great. Well, we're on to our final final two questions. The first, as ever, is um, what is your favourite building? My favourite building has got to be King's College Chapel in Cambridge. It is Henry the Gothic masterpiece, uh, and it's amazing. I mean, I was uh, fortunate enough to, as a kid, be a chorister there. Um, as I used to sing every day in the chapel. And um, yeah, I mean, I spent countless hours not listening to sermons and instead just staring up at the fan vaulted ceiling. It's the most amazing building. 
And so is, is that a choice dictated by memory, so like happy memories or, or pure architectural design? It's, it's, it's both. I mean, it's, it's, it's very happy memories for me and it's, uh, it's a, just a beast. <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> and our final question is the, the real estate-related innovation that excites you most. Yeah, you know what? I've got to admit, I do love a good automated valuation model. Ooh, very, <laughs> yeah, very nerdy, but I I think a lot of the innovation in the prop tech space around using alternative data sets to come up with precise valuations um, more than just what can be done by human sentiment and finger in the air. Meaning, um, uh, can you give us an example? Yeah, so I mean, if you can use uh, things like credit card data, um, transport data availability to local schools availability to local hospitals all that data and you can actually pinpoint a much more precise market valuation than than a valuer can i mean i find that stuff really really exciting and there's no end to where that can providing you can audit the algorithm uh yes i think that's going to be the next issue (laughs) so we'll be solving that later (laughs) um thank you very much it's been a pleasure to have you on Thanks, I've really enjoyed it. I'll be honest that this is not an area that I know particularly well, but intergenerational living does seem to offer some obvious solutions to various current societal problems, and I'll be following Justin's progress with great interest. It seems that we do need greater awareness that rather than just berating the elder of the baby boomers for selfishly not downsizing, we should spend more time thinking about why it seems to be so unappealing. On the flip side, there's clearly an opportunity for intelligent and creative management to create intergenerational communities that can provide benefits for all generations involved. It may not be easy, but as the UK population continues to grow older, we should embrace all forms of innovation with both hands. It's somewhat scary that this thinking remains in its infancy. As ever, show notes are up on the website buildingourfuture.net and stay tuned for our next episode. I'm Burt Broadhead and you've been listening to the Building Our Future podcast.